Welcome to Tarot for the End of Times, a podcast where we utilize the tarot as a tool to navigate through epochs of deep change. My name is Sarah Cargill. I'm an artist, cultural worker, and your host throughout the duration of this series. In each episode, I'll take a look at the archetypal figures presented in the major arcana cards from the Rider-Waite-Smith tarot deck to discuss what each card has to say about navigating through cycles of change, chaos, and instability. Throughout each episode, I'll offer reflection questions and suggestions for exercises that might support you in inviting the energy and wisdom of these archetypes into your daily life and practice. If you'd like to support this podcast and the person who makes it, you can make a monthly donation through my page on anchor.fm. Your generous act of community care and reciprocity helps me to access the resources I need to make projects like this possible and sustainable. You can also support this work by sharing this podcast with your friends and loved ones, and most importantly, by tuning in. Thanks for joining me. She woke up to a pounding headache around 3 or 4 a.m., a piercing pressure around her temples after a night out with them. She rolls to the cool side of her pillow to assuage the cranial throb. She meant to let out a sigh, but instead coughed out a sob. With hands clasped over her heaving mouth, she quietly slips out of bed. Some cool water, she whispers. That'll fix my head. Makes her way to the bathroom, toward the sliver of yellow fluorescent light. Down the long corridor, flat-footed pattering punctuates the still of the night. She outstretches her arm, pushes the door open with her fingertips, enters with her mouth covered, holds her breath until the door clicks. She turns on the faucet, runs the cold water for a while, cups her hands, immerses her face, then lifts her head, eyes closed, a fleeting smile. She reaches her hand above her head, grabs the dry end of the nearest towel. Her hand then grazes a hardened protrusion, triggering a sudden drop in the pit of her bowels. Averting the gaze of her own reflection, she touches the other side of her skull. Maybe it's not so bad, she hopes. Might just be a hangover, after all. Gripping the edge of the sink, she resigns, taking a sharp inhale. She lifts her eyes to meet herself. And what is this? Well, well, well. Looks like our friend here has sprouted some horns, with a tail and everything to boot. She leans into the mirror in disbelief. Bitch, she exclaims. This shit ain't cute. She taps her horns and lifts her tail, wondering what the hell to do. Then the lights begin to flicker, and, well, there's her cue. Entranced by flickering fluorescence, her reflection takes on a different shape. She braces herself, sinew tightens around bone, 
hairs on her neck standing alert at the nape. The reflection appears pixelated at first, liquid, mutable, not solid in form. Then a sudden coagulation is triggered, congealing the tempestuous storm. From the other side of the mirror, a voice announces, Hey girl, it's me. Sorry to wake you from your unpeaceful slumber, but I heard you wanted to get free. Our friend recoils and sputters out a lie. Who's me? We have not met. With a cock of the head and the roll of the eyes, the figure says, You know who it is. It's me, Baphomet. I don't know what you're doing here, she says, taking a nail file to her horn, attempting to whittle down the evidence, misguided and forlorn. Now, haven't we gone through this before? The reflection groans with irritation. Don't forget, I've been taking notes since your spirits put you on probation. I know this may be much to your disappointment, but uh, baby, integration is the only ointment. A current of rage swells under her skin, can barely keep her head above self-pity. She rattles off all the reasons why it's not her turn to take accountability. The reflection cuts her off. All I've heard so far is, it's them, it's them. Ah, ahem. I need you to own your part in this. That's the lesson. That's the gem. In a moment of lucidity, our friend puts the nail file down. I... Guess I have been, she says, ripping and running through this town. All right, okay, there's a start. Tell me, what else have you learned? Take stock of what's going on for you. Leave no stone unturned. She began to share each slight and betrayal that turned her world upside down. But at the end of her long-winded tunnel, she discovered that, uh, low-key, she too was being a clown. A gripping sense of fear begins to flood her nervous system. What else can I do right now, she laments. I'm afraid. I've missed them. I'm afraid of losing my sense of self, she went on to explain. But you've already given that up and then some, the reflection chimes in on the refrain. Don't beat yourself up too much, my dear. It's the stuff that makes you human. I just want to make sure that this is what you want to roll around in your ruin. The chains you wear are loose as hell. Remember, you have choice. What else will you give up for this? More years? Your voice? But who am I without them? She complained with a pout. Freedom is the choice, the reflection said, to finally find out. There's something rather poetic about the devil succeeding the temperance card. I don't know how this season of Venus retrograde in Capricorn during Capricorn season has been panning out for you all, but the devil card has been showing up repeatedly for me in the last couple of weeks, particularly in those moments that beckon me to exercise discernment and firm up my boundaries. If you're wondering if it's a test, 
it is. But hey, we win some, we lose some, and uh, that's okay. As an archetype, the devil wants you to protect your assets and your resources. The devil comes in after temperance to bring balance to Jupiterian growth, enforcing necessary restrictions and boundaries to help you protect your well-being. All of the healing that you may have experienced while working in partnership with the Angel of Temperance won't really mean much if you're unwilling to employ the boundaries and discernment it takes to protect your peace. The Devil card depicts an oversized, full frontal image of Baphomet, one of the most notorious, polarizing, and routinely scapegoated deities known across many religions, cultural groups, and practices. With the wings of a bat, the horns of a ram, the torso of a human, and the legs of a harpy, Baphomet is a figure who symbolizes equilibrium that's catalyzed through polarizing elements. Described in Eliphas Levy's seminal occult text, Dogme Rituel de la Haute Magie, as the, quote, symbolization of the equilibrium of opposites. Baphomet is a distinctly queered deity that blurs arbitrary gender distinctions as well as other distinctions that differentiate humans from other animals, mortal beings from mythical creatures, and of course forces of good from forces of evil. The deity's horns frame an inverted pentagram, a geometric representation of the goat's head, and a symbol that invokes the elements of earth, water, fire, air, and spirit. Though there are a number of meanings associated with the upside-down pentagram, the one that feels most relevant to this episode is one that interprets the symbol as representing the ethereal spirit descending into a tangible matter state. Governed by the zodiac sign of Capricorn, the devil wants you to get real about where your investments are going, what exactly they're doing, who it's benefiting, and where you're hemorrhaging resources. The devil is here to wake your ass up. As local Bay Area Queen of Pentacles, Jessie Susanna Karnatz, aka The Money Witch, calls it, Earth School is in session. The deity is perched on a narrow rectangular podium, or as described by Waite himself, an altar while holding up their right hand in the shape of a V, a gesture reminiscent of the Vulcan salute, for those who are uh, familiar with Star Trek. Notably, this hand gesture is in the shape of the Hebrew letter Shin, which I understand to be a letter that represents the word Shaddai, uh, which is a name for God. My understanding is that this gesture is often used by Jewish priests as a form of blessing. Surprisingly, though Star Trek obviously came much later, Leonard Nimoy has explained to fans that the iconic Vulcan salute was inspired by just that. I'll leave a link to that video in the show notes and uh, maybe pat myself on the back for finding such a weirdly specific clip. But I bring this up because it's important to destigmatize this incredibly charged and admittedly polarizing archetype. Fear is a very common, 
very human response to that which we do not understand. But, you know, it's it's hard to receive the messages that this archetype has to offer if we're listening through the filter of fear. Believe it or not, the devil wants you to stay blessed. Baphomet carries a scroll in their left hand. The bottom half of the scroll set ablaze by the fiery tail of the humanoid figure who stands on the bottom right. Turn your attention to the other side of this card and we'll see another figure with a bundle of grapes attached to their tail. Both figures wear loosely wrapped chains around their necks and are bolted to the altar that elevates Baphomet. Traditionally, these figures are said to represent a woman and a man or a feminine and masculine demon because, you know, they have horns on their head. But here at Tarot for the End of Times, here at Snakeskin Studios, we acknowledge that there is no perfect system and thus we do our best with the tools that we have to, you know, Try not to perpetuate gender essentialism, yes? However, I do want to make note of the presence of both masculine and feminine energies by building on what we learned in the temperance episode. Within the context of traditional Chinese medicine, the concept of yin and yang help us to conceptualize the function and manifestation of feminine and masculine energies within our bodies. Everyone, regardless of one's gender identity, carries within them masculine and feminine qualities, and these qualities work together to help us function in this world as embodied beings. So, Yin is an expression of feminine qualities and is described as substantive, absorptive, and inward-facing. Foods or energetic states that nourish, attract, retain, and build matter, such as muscle, tissue, bone, fat, etc., are categorized as yin. So, for example, when there's an overabundance of yin within the body, that might manifest as something like uh, fluid retention. Yang, on the other hand, is an expression of masculine qualities and is energetic. It's uh, exertive and outward facing. Yang is thus the exertion of energy that uses yin as fuel to make things go and, you know, function how it's meant to. With this framework in mind, we can interpret the humanoid figure to the right as the masculine slash energetic and the humanoid figure on the left as feminine slash substantive. These distinctions for me have less to do with what body parts these figures are drawn with and more to do with what's attached to the tips of their tails. Grapes aside from being a richly storied symbol for abundance and wealth, are substantive, they're nourishing, and they draw us in. Fire, on the other hand, is energetic, and it makes things go. It exerts energy by burning through yin, and when we get too close to the heat, it has a repellent quality to it. Now, if the descriptors feminine and masculine still feel a little bit off for you, 
Another way to look at this would be through the framework of polarities. Now, while I hesitate to name femininity and masculinity as opposing energies, because again, these qualities exist within a very wide spectrum, I do see these qualities as expressions of universal polarity, much like the polarity that we witness with the coming and going of uh, day and night, or the polarity that we speak of when we say things like, as above, so below, as within, so without. These humanoid figures invite us to consider what we consume and how we exert or spend our time, resources, attention, and energy. Through example, they caution us to take stock of how and what we regularly and compulsively consume and to examine our relationship to what makes us feel powerful and secure on emotional, material, and spiritual levels. They represent what can happen when we let worldly accolades, power, and possessions become the very deities that we worship. Without a proper system of checks and balances, the limitless desire for more can tether us to the hamster wheel of insatiability. And so their presence thus serves as both a warning and a reminder that all material blessings that you receive in earth school come with a balancing polarity that keeps things in check. Let's talk about this. The devil card comes just after temperance, which you might remember is ruled by Jupiter, the planet lovingly referred to as the great benefic that brings an influx of growth and blessings into our lives. What's interesting to me is that immediately after the temperance card, we are met with the energy of Jupiter's polar partner, Saturn, the ruling planet of the devil card. Now, let's think for a moment about Saturn's rings and what they communicate on a spiritual level. The rings of Saturn are the most extensive among all the planets within our solar system, protecting the inner sanctum of the celestial giant with a ring of rocky material and ice. Therefore, as a celestial spirit, Saturn likes to set boundaries and limits as a way to maintain the integrity of the blessings that Jupiter offers. While Jupiter, when left unchecked, likes to grow and grow and accumulate for the sake of growth and accumulation, Saturn comes in with a system of checks and balances to ensure that your growth is still in alignment with what you need. The image of this Saturnian deity is largely based on the image of Baphomet found in Eliphas Levy's treatise on Western occult ritual magic that I noted earlier. According to his uh, Wikipedia page, (laughs) at 26 years old, Levy was on his way to becoming a Catholic priest, but just a week before being ordained, he gave it all up to pursue another spiritual path. His treatise was his first publication of many on hermetic rituals and esoteric sciences and was later translated to English by A.E. Waite himself. 
Given the esoteric lineage of this card, it's likely that the scroll in Baphomet's left hand is a representation of the Cypher Manuscripts, which is a collection of 60 books that are essentially used as a syllabus on hermetic elemental magic. These manuscripts rely on a cryptographic system to simultaneously document and obfuscate initiation rituals that undergird many foundational practices that we've come to associate with hermetic magic, occult studies, and the esoteric sciences. Under the system, numbers are often substituted with Hebrew letters, which for me, is a critical motif that places weight on the spiritual significance of numbers and numerology, particularly for this card. Within the framework of numerology, numbers act as codified vibrational frequencies, each with their own characteristic qualities that elicit a certain response from all that it touches. Much like words or letters or notes on a musical scale, numbers are visual symbols that represent a fundamental frequency. They're just one of many vehicles through which vibration can express itself. It's easy to take something like numbers for granted. We are, for the most part, taught to interact with these symbols from an objective distance. But in this moment, I wish to remind you of how intimate a thing vibration is. After all, we are frequency. Bodies of sonority, the song of a lifetime, each one of us humming a constant tune just by existing. Numbers, therefore, can and do reflect and inform our subjective experiences. As we discussed in previous episodes, when it comes to numerology, numbers with multiple digits are often reduced to a core number by adding the digits together. You might also remember that multi-digit numbers can also be examined by way of their individual digits. For this episode, I'll employ both methods to elucidate the numerological significance of this card. While the Devil card may be one that triggers a visceral recoiling for many of us, there's also an obvious undercurrent of eroticism that makes this archetype that much more alluring and taboo at the same time. Much like the erotic pool of our vices and well-oiled habits, the devil carries a seductive quality that moves us to reevaluate our relationship to intimacy. This archetype demands for our own health and safety that we differentiate depth from toxicity and intimacy from codependency. The question here is, why are we turned on by the very things and people we need to hold firm boundaries with, goddamn? <laughs> the devil card though numbered as the 15th major arcana, also carries the vibrational quality of the number six, a number that we're first introduced to in the tarot through the lover's card. Today, I'll put my music degree to some use by saying that the sixth in music, <laughs> either the major sixth or the minor sixth, is a harmonious, sonically consonant interval that is more or less meant to help us sing in harmony with a counterpart. 
The devil and the lovers aren't so different from each other. One might even argue that they occupy two sides of the same coin as both cards serve to direct us towards external mirrors that reflect the intimate intricacies of who we are and who we are becoming. As archetypes, both the lovers and the devil offer us opportunities to re-examine our growth edges through our relationships with others. As cards of personal choice, cards that want you to do what's right for you, both archetypes remind us that our agency is expressed through the choices that we make. Visually and numerologically, these archetypes are in constant conversation, and as the foil archetype, the devil reminds us that true intimacy with others can only go as far as the intimacy with which we have met ourselves, and there is no intimacy without shadow work. The devil card speaks to the shadow side of unexamined partnerships, the ways in which we might unconsciously project our unmet needs onto others, and the crushing disappointment that comes when our counterpart fails to meet us in ways that, honestly, we aren't even willing to meet ourselves. The energy of this card often points towards manifestations of codependence and other habits that keep us pinned under the thumb of relational toxicity. Ultimately, the devil wants to know... What's your part in this? How do you perpetuate the very things that you complain about the most? Getting honest about your role is an essential part of reestablishing right relationship with the people, places, spirits, and material assets that you are in intimate partnership with. Now, let's go ahead and break this number down into its elemental parts. The number one and the number five are assigned to the magician and the hierophant archetypes, respectively. Place these three cards together side by side, and you'll notice that all three archetypes strike similar poses, raising one hand in blessing while lowering the other hand to connect what's above with what's below. The connection to the magician urges us to remember our power and to the best of our ability, to try to work with and through our pain points without over-identifying with our pain story. The devil's connection to the Hierophant is where we can learn about the machinations of holy balance. It's important to note here that not all cosmologies and spiritual practices fuck with the notion that the devil is this purely evil figure or that the devil exists at all, but instead honors the trickster archetype as a necessary figure who pushes us through a labyrinthian process to deliver us messages that, you know, to our detriment, we dodge for the sake of maintaining comfort. Leaving it up to the devil to serve as a catch-all scapegoat for all things shitty does us a great disservice by flattening a richly layered archetype into a monotonous figurehead. What some might call evil, others call balance. I would argue, as I have before, that for the most part, 
The impulse to assign value judgments like good and evil to complex systems, that's that's a distinctly human impulse that's often culturally and religiously reinforced to uphold systems of oppression like white supremacy. Which, you know, we'll, we'll get there in a few moments, but I'm just going to finish this thought first. The Devil card works in partnership with the Hierophant to remind us that the universe achieves balance by activating polarized axes. Moreover, the connection to the Hierophant prompts the Devil to ask, which values have you committed to not in word but in action? Who are your people and with whom do you regularly choose to partake in sacred communion? If it's true, what they say, that you're an amalgamation of the five people you spend the most time with, then the Devil card asks, in what ways do the people in your closest orbit reflect who you've become? Do you like that person? How committed are you to that version of yourself? You know, what if the Devil isn't necessarily here to tell you lies, but has found a clever way of telling you truths that you refuse to hear. You can't out-trick the trickster, you know? As an archetype, the devil is, in my opinion, a target of one of the world's most insidious and relentless PR nightmares. <laughs> because stigma has a tendency to snowball into pathology, it feels particularly critical that within this episode, we take some time to destigmatize this card by unpacking at least one of Baphomet's origin stories so that we can maintain a tempered, level-headed approach when working with this archetype. You know, targets of scapegoating often reveal more about the one doing the scapegoating than the one being scapegoated. This story is no different. Baphomet was once a figure that symbolized universal, energetic, and material balance until a more convenient and one-sided relationship became the norm. Now, according to the motherfucking Encyclopedia Britannica, Baphomet's name first appears in text in the year 1098 in a letter written by Anselm of Ribermont wherein he describes the Siege of Antioch during the First Crusade. As with all religious wars, creating a common enemy is a crucial war strategy, and so Anselm, in one of the most successful instances of othering, says in his letter that the, quote, Turks called loudly upon Baphomet. Most scholars believe that Anselm was actually referring to Muhammad, as in the prophet who founded Islam. The Knights of Templar was a military group whose original purpose was to support the religious warfare waged by the Crusades by protecting Christians during their pilgrimage in the Latin East. But eventually, by the end of the 13th century, they became more active in banking and other commercial opportunities. It might be useful to conceptualize them as harbingers of an early blueprint for the military-industrial complex. During a moment of declining public popularity and increasing mistrust, Philip IV of France, 
who was financially indebted to the Templars, seized the opportunity to clear his own financial debts by piggybacking off of the charges made by another. By taking advantage of a moment of low public opinion, Philip IV initiated a series of arrests, torturing members of the Knights of Templar into false confessions, and then burning them at the stake, and later pressuring Pope Clement V to completely disband the Templars, thus dissolving the order in 1312. So what was Philip IV's charge against the Templars? The heretical act of idolatrous worship of, you guessed it, Baphomet. As an archetype who has been historically scapegoated to carry the burden of everyone's projections and unmet obligations, the devil, much like the Capricorns in our lives, wants us to, above all else, just own our shit. <laughs> what most people get wrong about this archetype is that the devil isn't really judging you. They're just popping in to ask the tough questions and gauge whether or not you're owning your decisions or if you're still on that bullshit. As a meticulous record keeper, if the devil's records don't align with the story you've grown comfortable narrating to yourself and to others, the devil is actually generous enough to loop you into a conference call and conduct a 360 review to help you act right before the next card, the tower card, pulls the rug out from under you. The devil, as an archetype who is more or less the gatekeeper of karma, deeply understands and respects their own limitations within the cosmos. The devil can't save you from yourself or from the natural consequences of your neglect and avoidance. What the devil can do, however, is help you get honest about your assumptions, pain points, half-truths, and limitations to prepare you for your season of harvest when you will reap all that you've sown, crops and weeds alike. You know... On more than a few occasions, I've heard folks mention how the devil card activates feelings of self-loathing, shame, and judgment, particularly when folks are doing readings for themselves. So, speaking directly from personal experience, if the devil card appears in your spread, I want you to first observe any knee-jerk reactions or visceral responses that raise emotional red flags or somatic alerts within you. These flags and alerts might feel like a quickened heart rate, shallow breathing, it can sound like racing thoughts, um, or that hypercritical voice that you wouldn't dare use on anyone else, but you know somehow find it very easy to use on yourself. It can look like a clenched jaw, a furrowed brow, raised shoulders, a tightening in your throat. If you're taking handwritten notes, are you white knuckling it right now? <laughs> Seriously, check. <laughs> As best as you can, I urge you to check in with yourself and to slow it way the fuck down before proceeding with your reading. If you're having a particularly challenging response to the card, put the, re 
Put the rest of your deck down for a second. Resist the urge to pull a shitload of clarifying cards and just give yourself a minute to take note of what's coming up because that's where your attention is most needed. That's where the love needs to go. That's the divine guidance. In what ways do you unconsciously or habitually undermine your own power and agency as a means to relinquish responsibility? In what ways might those habits of avoidance keep you comfortable but small? Who exactly is running the show here? The devil in the upright position can speak to one's growth edges and how your choice to engage them or not, will ultimately shape your karmic path, particularly as it pertains to challenges that involve codependency, trauma bonds, numbing, obsessive habits, and escapism. I'll add here that with the Venus and Mercury retrograde still very much active, uh, it's important to remember that nostalgia can become its own kind of escapism that momentarily absolves you from dealing with present pain, but for the price of future pain. Baphomet's bat wings offer a visual reminder to make note of any relationship or commitment that drains you of your precious energy and encourages you to name any parasitic attachments for exactly what they are. Call it what it is. As an animal that uses echolocation to see clearly in the dark, the spirit of the bat also reminds us to listen for the reflections that our projections bring back to us. With the information and experiences that you now have, What will you do differently this time? The devil seeks to remind us that we have options. If the devil appears in the reverse in your spread, I want you to give yourself a round of applause for doing the work to get in right relationship with your shadows. You may have recently taken the time to rebuild your foundations for self-accountability, self-awareness, and have reassessed short-sighted band-aid solutions that prevented you from learning the lesson behind the struggle. This card in reverse also indicates the implementation of healthy boundaries and structures that can stand to carry the weight of your integrity. Staying true to them is a deeply devotional act of self-love and self-care. While there may be much to celebrate with the devil in reverse, the celebration comes with a tiny little warning label. It's hard to maintain things like healthy boundaries and self-accountability when those you love or once loved directly benefited from your emotional and energetic porousness. In other words, your healing might very well piss some people off. People might have a lot to say about who you used to be and how they miss that person, but the devil in reverse wants you to remember that other people's feelings about your new boundaries are not yours to manage. Capricorns know all too well that elevation can be a lonely thing. 
If in this season you begin to witness foundational people fall away from your relational ecosystem, try not to panic. Instead, maybe consider what it catalyzes and trust that the universe and your spirit team are doing what they need to do to restructure your life in accordance with the commitments that you've made to yourself. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of Tarot for the End of Times. This episode was actually really fun to write and I definitely felt like I was giving myself a pep talk too because these back-to-back retrogrades just had me feeling like personally attacked. (laughs) Like, oh my god, I'm too cute to be going through this. Anyway, I hope that this episode helps carry you through the rest of the Venus retrograde in Capricorn and Mercury retrograde season. If you'd like to access some additional care and support during this time, I invite you to take advantage of the winter portal discount that I introduced in the last episode. You have until January 31st to book either a full tarot consultation or a shadow integration reading with me using the code WINTERPORTAL, spelled in all caps, W-N-T-R-P-O-R-T-A-L, for that 11% discount. A gentle reminder that you just need to book the appointment by the 31st, but you can schedule the reading for a later date, so, you know, no pressure. All links, of course, will live in the show notes. All right, y'all. Take good care of yourself and your loved ones, and I'll see you in the next episode.